Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Are you counting the days? Monday, Joan comes back from her vacation. It's a pleasure to be here today, tomorrow, Friday. Looking forward to spending time with you. I am Turi with you. That's about T-U-R-I, so you can find me. And uh, you can find me right here, 773-763-WCPT. Keep that number handy. I'm also told that there's a new source for you to follow programming and uh, people that we mention on the show, and that is the lead, L-E-D-E, at Heartland Signal. So if you go to heartlandsignal.com and then ask for the lead, or if you just Google the lead, Heartland Signal, why is lead spelled so strangely? Because in old newspaper speak, that was the beginning of the story. L-E-D-E. Kind of nice that we do like a little tip of the hat, an acknowledgement of the newspaper industry as it used to be. Uh, by the way, that's still a common conversational topic in our house. When, uh, when you have someone who tells you a long story and seems to not get to the point for a while, you can look at that person and say, hey, you buried your lead there. Because, of course, that's the most important place to start. So the lead for today for the Joan Esposito show is all the great conversation you're going to have. Uh, we're going to talk about um, the dismissal of Dr. Claudine Gay, uh, and we're going to hear from an expert in uh, university administration. That would be Guggenheim awardee and Carnegie awardee, Dr. Burl Satter who has, and I believe at the time, at this time still is chair of the history department at Rutgers, Newark, and is in fact a former uh, student at Harvard. And I believe that she took her master's from there, but we'll check. I think, I think she started with Harvard and then moved to Yale. Gosh, it's so hard. Decisions, decisions. And she'll be speaking with us. Also, we're going to hear uh, about a really, I think, insightful piece of writing. You've met Dashka Slater here on this show before. She is the writer of a book that was made into a movie and also has a new book. She's a very successful writer. Um, but if you're familiar with the book, The 57 Bus, about the attack on a transgender fluid person on a city bus in Oakland, uh, you will want to hear Dashka's uh, conversation about what she would advise, what she would ask from young progressives. And if you're wondering and you want to read the piece for yourself before Dashka shows up, just uh, Facebook friend me or just go to my page. There's a link right there. We'll also talk about some great theater pieces and opportunities for you to see some of Chicago's more creative talent in the Filet of Solo Festival and a little bit about the Chicago Architecture Center's Film Festival. Yes, there's a, a film festival about architecture. I'm curious, too. We'll find out more about it uh, from the head of the Chicago Architecture Center, which is 
one of those great Chicago treasures of an organization. If you've ever been on the Architecture River cruises or taken a, a relative or even suggested it, they, they have a lot to do with that. Or, or if you visited the Chicago Architecture Open House. So there's the menu. And uh, I guess that's the lead. I want to ask you for your thoughts as you look at the conversation now about uh, getting rid of or moving away from police officers in public schools. And you know that uh, Mayor Johnson ran as a favorite of the Chicago teachers. They are the people who really propelled him into office. It was the Chicago teachers who funded his early campaign when people were shaking their heads and saying, why this guy? Well, we're starting to get our answer now because the bidding of the teachers uh, and just the mayor's own ideas about how education should work in the city of Chicago are really coming into focus. We're getting progress on an elected school board, which I, I don't have a problem with, but some of the other things, uh, Mayor Johnson, in my view, basically mounting a war on selective enrollment schools in Chicago, which I think is a terrible mistake for the city and for the students. But now comes a new a new salvo over the over the line to circumvent the power of the local school council by making it possible for the for the. Board of Ed, the the mayor's whatever they're calling it now, to to simply fire all the police officers in the public schools. Well, on the surface, you might think to yourself, well, why why shouldn't we? What do we need with police in public schools? And the answer with so many things is, well, that depends. This weird knee-jerk reaction that we have, get rid of all of them, is a very strange reaction that you may have noticed. If we don't like the way some of the police behave, there seems to be a group of people saying, well, get rid of all of them, which is absurd. I mean, if you think about it, you wouldn't say that in the context of any other occupation, really. Get rid of all of them, indeed, If you have misbehaving clergy, you don't say, get rid of all of them. If you have misbehaving youth group leaders, you don't say, get rid of all of them. If you have misbehaving teachers, you don't say, get rid of all of them. I mean, go down the list of every professional. There are professionals who have the potential to do more harm because they carry weapons I don't believe, and I'll have to check, I, I don't believe that um, some of the of the security officers, the school security officers, uh, are, are not armed. But I'll check on that. I want to be absolutely rock solid certain of that before I say it. But there are schools where the security officer does a wonderful job of intervention does a wonderful job of keeping the students safe in school. And the whole idea that they just don't belong there, that really sort of depends on the school, doesn't it? Or it should. It depends on the person who's got the gig, doesn't it? It should. It's the same as 
if you ever had a crappy school principal who didn't seem to really care, well, you would change out the principal. You wouldn't say, oh, you know what, let's get rid of all the principals at the school. This one sucks. You wouldn't do that. You would take a thoughtful approach. And it's interesting that the thoughtful approach that the city has taken so far is to have a local school council and it is an elected body in in the most part. So so after this whole effort to elect people to school boards, after the whole effort to make sure that we have responsive elected people in August, in August, um in in uh in the schools that the mayor took in, when did he do that? I think it was in August. All this effort, why would we then say, you know what, we've elected all these people and the first thing they're going to do is do an end run around all these other elected people? What the heck is that? <laughs> we elected you to undo the election of the other people. One more time, this mayor, this mayor. I, I I don't understand how he keeps getting it so very wrong. Again, I'm sure he means well. And look, I was no fan of the prior mayor, but at least there seemed to be some expertise in the levels below her. This this is just all over the map. We'll check in with more hard data for you, but as someone who's actually got a personal connection to the LSC uh, topic here, as they say in talk radio, I have voted for the LSC in my neighborhood. I have a kid who used to be a student representative on the LSC at the uh, Selective Enrollment High School he attended. I know you've heard me say it before. Actually, just as an aside, his college essay was about how badly some of the adults acted while he was on the LSC. And it's true. Uh, they went through several principles during the time that he served. And every time an election came up, uh, it was just madhouse there. There was one point where, uh, just as a little note of irony, there was nearly a fisticuff between members of the LSC and the audience. And my spouse, who had gone to pick up the kid from the LSC meeting, was blocked at the door by the security officer, a Chicago police officer. What do you want to come in here for, sir? I'm picking up my kid who's on the LSC. Well, you better be careful. They're about to go and fight in there. I'm waiting to see whether this is the fate of the school board as well. More to come. On a more cheerful note, if you are in the new year taking down your holiday decorations and you are filled with disappointment at the fact that some of your lighting seems to be malfunctioning, we will have an environmentally thoughtful solution for you. You will meet the person who has helped put together that thoughtful solution in a moment. On WCPT Live, Local, and Progressive. Joan Esposito, Live, Local, and Progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. 
17 minutes after 2 o'clock. It is the Joan Esposito Show. I am, in fact, the very same Tory writer in for Joan. So you take down your holiday decorations and you curse and you complain because some of those fancy strings of lights that you've gotten over the last few years have failed. And you think, throw these in the trash. Stop. Stop. Uh, Sherry Scalco, founder of Reduce Waste Chicago, has a thoughtful solution. Welcome, Sherry. You're on WCPT. Hi, Tori. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. What should people do with these used up, broken up, annoying uh, holiday lights? (laughs) Well, they should drop them off with us at 24 collection locations across the city, and we will take them to be recycled. Oh, how does one recycle a holiday light? What happens to the dead holiday light? You know, that's an excellent question. So the term recycling is a little broad, right? So what it actually is, um, is we take them to a place, Elgin Recycling, out in the burbs, and they will strip the lights to essentially reclaim the valuable metal inside, specifically the copper. Ah. And then the remaining material, they send what is called downstream, which is to another vendor who is interested in the leftover material. So what it is, is it is keeping your holiday light out of the landfill for as long as possible and basically keeping as much valuable material so we don't have to tap into our natural resources. Ah, that all sounds very sensible. I will tell you my solution, by the way. <laughs> I, I, uh, yes. um, I don't recommend this necessarily, but you'd be amazed what you can do by unplugging your holiday lights, figuring out what's gone wrong, cutting the wire on either side of the problem, getting some electrical tape and sticking those two wires together and binding them with electrical tape. Not that I'm advising this necessarily. I, but I admire that spirit for sure. I, so what we do, yes. what, what we do advocate first. Yes. is to try to repair, right? So at the end of your lights, right, the part that plugs into um, the socket, yes. there's a little, like, trap trap door that can pop open. Yes. And there's extra fuses in there. So you have can the, I have to fuse. ask you, have those ever once yeah. fixed a problem? Because I have never, ever, in I've got a whole box full <laughs> of those little fuses. And frankly, I'd like to know where to recycle them. Because in my whole life, I have never found, I mean, if the fuse is blowing, it's because there's a problem with the wire. Well, lights are intended to last about 2,000 hours, believe it or not. So you're probably looking at, you know, depending on how long you leave them plugged in, probably like five to 10 years. Ah. Um, but I, but what you just did was you hit the nail on the head, right? So the manufacturers create this process to say like, oh, here's lights that you, light bulbs that you can replace and here's fuses that you can replace. But that kind of process is almost inaccessible. To people like us, right? They're tiny. You might not have the tools. And then if you put it in, does it work? And it ends up being almost as frustrating as untangling lights in the first place. And that is when you throw them in the garbage if you are most people. Right. Exactly. So we at Reduce Way Chicago, besides collecting items, so we work with people on a personal basis of reducing waste personally, We also work on a producer and policy level. So we really believe that waste is a producer responsibility. Ah. You want us to buy those lights? 
you need to be responsible that they work well, that they last long, and that when they reach the end of their life cycle, you provide a responsible way to dispose of them. Which brings us. us, which brings us yeah. to the collection points. Are there is there a collection point yeah. in every neighborhood? Is there a collection point at the store where you bought them? Where are these collection points? These collection points, there's 24 of them. And admittedly, they are concentrated on the north side. So we started this about two years ago. And when I say it's just a bunch of us that got together and say, hey, let's collect lights and we'll take them out to be recycled. This has grown organically. So right now, our 24 locations are located um, primarily on the the north and a little bit towards the west side. We're expanding. Um, We go as far south as the plant, which is on... um, 47th Street, and we go about as far west as, um, like, Milwaukee and, good question here, we go west. Fort okay, Glen, so Austin, it, if, if people want to know, they can go to which website to tell them where they oh. can take their yes. stuff? Yes. ReduceWasteChicago.org. That is, that is our website, and Reduce it's on our homepage. ReduceWasteChicago.org. Am I allowed to make a suggestion? Can I make a suggestion? Please. This is the person who never Please. shuts her mouth for two minutes and is constantly making suggestions. Yes. So, <laughs> we love suggestions. One of my favorite nonprofits, to, to whom, in full disclosure, I, I send a modest check every year, is my block, my hood, my city. And they um, mm-hmm. also had a big program to help people put up holiday lights this year to to light up all the neighborhoods and they would be a great place to dispatch to collect people's broken holiday lights and and green up the neighborhoods at the same time um i don't know if you've connected with them maybe you have already but i love that organization and i'll betcha they would be like cool we'll go to people's houses and see if they have any broken lights if we can't fix them we'll take them to you Right. That is a fantastic idea. We love collaborating and that's what we're, that's what we're doing. I'm putting them on our list of organizations to reach out to and I appreciate that. My block, my hood, my city. I love them. My city. Yes. That's yes. all They're one. Great. My block, my, my city. Yes. And I, yeah, I do. I support them every chance I get, including there's somebody walking around Toronto, Canada with a my block, my hood, my city sweatshirt that I sent up there for them. Anyway, um, you're, you've got these lights. Which would you say, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, sure. which are the most explosive, self-destructive, coming to a landfill soon near you type of lights that you have noticed? Are they the ones that are shaped like snowflakes? Are the ones that look like icicles? Are the plain old strings of lights? Which ones just give up the ghost immediately? So... You know what? That's an excellent question. I think just the regular incandescent ones and often ones that are connected with decor, right? So um, LED ones last the longest. Um, But we also, you know, we look at it from a standpoint of look at what you really need. I know we love decorating um, and making things uh, to look festive and whatnot. But from a standpoint of what are you buying and what are you using it for, LEDs buy lights because they last the longest. Well, hold up. When you say incandescent, do you mean those ancient, Mm -hmm. like, screw in a light bulb? People are still using those? Oh, well, there's there's some of those, yes. Holy smokes. Literally, those those are like the (laughs) burn your house down lights. (laughs) Right? Yes. Well, they're not. 
they're not sold anymore, but we get a lot of stuff where people are cleaning out their basements. And then uh, all of a sudden we get, we get the ones that I used to play, that I used to read to under, under the Christmas tree, right? In the yes. 70s, they were crawl so, under your Christmas tree in the corner. Yeah. I, I did not grow up with a Christmas tree and my lights are all mm-hmm. uh, Hanukkah lights. They're blue and white and yep. they, they only go yep. up on the inside of my house. But I loved visiting my friends with those magical, yep. what were they? Yellow, blue, red, green lights yes. with actual bulbs until we were all told yep. that it was basically a house fire waiting to happen when you put them yep. on a dried up Christmas tree. And anyone who's ever yep. like stuck their finger on a kid's nightlight with those bulbs knows that they they actually get toastier than you might think. So, yeah. Okay, so clean out grandma's basement. Then you want to get in touch with Reduce Waste. Wait a minute. Chicago. Oh, boy. See? What's the name of it? Reduce Waste Chicago? (laughs) Yep. ReduceWasteChicago.org. Any other post-holiday greening up tips that you want to share? I know I have one. What's yours? I saw saw in Block Club Chicago, um, you probably Mm -hmm. ordered a lot of stuff on Amazon, and it might have come in those envelopes, those plastic, like, what the heck do I do with this white plastic envelope? I feel so bad putting it in the trash, and you can't recycle it. There is, like, a second-chance packing business where if the thing is clean, like if if the puppy didn't whiz on it, you can um, collect a whole bag of those and bring them, if you check out Block Club Chicago, there's there are a couple of businesses that are taking those and, and reusing them for their original purpose. And then the other thing is, yes. if you ever have to pack something up and send it, don't buy bubble wrap. Just cut up those white plastic Amazon envelopes and use that as packing. It works great. You can you can use yes. those. You don't need the penguin poop. You don't. Although it's very disappointing not to pop all the bubbles in the bubble wrap. I yeah, do exactly. do kind exactly. of miss that. But but <laughs> you can reuse those things. Even though on first pass, you go, what am I going to do with this? Any other tips from yes. from your uh, side of the website there? No, you actually hit the nail on the head is with EcoShip, which is the organization that reuses and gently used packing materials. Yes. We always suggest to people reuse, repurpose, repair. There are a lot of R's that happen before you get into recycle. Yes. So we, we try not to overwhelm people with too many tips. And we always say, like, with what you've got right now, just try to reuse, repair, repurpose before you get to recycling. Although I have to say, you have to have a conversation mm-hmm. with your household before an entire yeah. coat closet is full <laughs> of boxes and packing material. We do have, we are very privileged in our house to have a, a spare storage closet. And it has become something of a joke where you open up that door and kablamo, 16 boxes. There was an old radio series called Fibber McGee and, and Molly and a recurring sound joke of that was Fibber McGee and Molly's Closet, where they would open up the door and you would hear about 45 seconds of sound of different things falling out. It's it's kind of like that in some people's houses. I'm going to reuse this and you stuff it in there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reuse yes. this. And then you yes. open up the door and it's pouring out into the hallway and your family's just kind of looking at you yes. aghast. So like, what exactly are you going to reuse this for? Are you planning to open up your own UPS franchise? 
franchise? What what are you doing with all this? Yes. And, and then, as my 12-year-old would say, Mom, this is giving hoarding vibes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so <laughs> if your family is accusing you of hoarding yeah. vibes, one more time, re... Okay, you have to do this. Re... re, re can drive me crazy. You're going to reuse. You're going to reuse. You're going to repurpose. Right. You're going to repair. And your and then you're going to if your website. Yep, then you're going to come to reduce waste. Yep, reduce waste Chicago dot org. Reduce waste org. I'm, I'm I'm mesmerizing myself now, and yes. I, I want to thank you for spending time. You've been lots of fun, and thank you for the work you do. And just remember, reduce waste Chicago, all one word, and then the dot org, and you too can lift your head proudly and say, I can find things in my in my spare closet, and and I didn't fill up a landfill to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tori. It's just about 2.30, the Joan Esposito Show. I am Tori Ryder. In for Joan, in a moment, one of my very favorite people who does good work and has lately found it more difficult to do good work, Dashka Slater, writer and investigator on WCPT, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. Yep, it's me, in for Joan. I am Tori Ryder, and joining me, one of my favorite people with so many accolades strung behind her name that if we put them all out here, we would not have time to hear what she has to say. So we're just going to call her very successful writer of middle school books, investigator, investigative reporter, um, author of The 57 Bus, and the new book. Let's get that new name out there, Dashka. What's the new title of the new book? The new book is called Accountable, the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives it changed. There you go. See why I couldn't remember it. It's long. Uh, But if you Google Dashka's name, you will find all of that. And you might be lucky enough to find her Substack, which is where she wrote a piece that I I pretty much jumped up from my computer and yelled, yes, finally, somebody, yes. And um, that's why I asked you to talk about it. Uh, And and the title of this article um, was basically, well, I'll read it. Six things I wish young progressives knew. And you have six. So let's go through the six first and then maybe talk about the response to the six. In any order you like, can you can you run down the six for us, Dashka? Yeah, so very briefly, the six are coalitions require compromise. Language isn't as important as you think. Shame doesn't teach. If voting didn't matter, they wouldn't be trying to stop you from doing it. Number five is that it's the boring stuff that impacts people's lives. And number six is that it's okay not to have the answers. I love every one of them. Every stinking one of them. Um, But possibly my favorite one lately, maybe just because I'm a talk show host, is language isn't as important as you think. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And so, you know, I want to start by saying that I actually think language is important. And 
you know, the 57 bus is written using they, them pronouns because it's about a non-binary person. I think it's really important, respectful and cordial to use the right words that people ask you to use when just talking about them. Um, and, you know, words have meaning, and we should pay attention to the meanings of the words that we use. So I will happy to stipulate all of that. Yes. And language has become kind of a progressive velvet rope where there's the ever-changing lexicon of the best phrase to use, the best terminology, and it can be kind of a way of signaling you know, the in-group and the out-group. And if you are not conversant in the latest terminology, which usually comes from academia, then you can feel that you don't belong and people can be fairly punitive in their response to you know, the lack of using the exact right words for things. I'm, I'm thinking and, of, I'm going to pause you there. I'm thinking yeah. of uh, someone who was, I think it was the University of Illinois at Chicago, but I could be wrong. There was somebody being considered for a very high university position and he addressed an email to a group of women as uh, ladies and they ripped him right out of consideration for the job. And I'm just thinking, What? <laughs> Yeah. In, yeah. Instead a, of saying we prefer not to be called ladies, we prefer to be called professors or women. And by the way, uh, this person used gentlemen for for the men. Um, yeah. It wasn't like he was singling out. You know, the, the male professors were professors, and the women were pr- professors were ladies. He was being very even-handed, and and he said, you know, this could have been a teachable moment for me. I'm happy to learn and adjust. And they just threw him out on his ear. And I also have to say, as someone with a tiny little building that we rent out, and we try very hard to get everybody's personal pronouns correct, I have been in the interesting position when when I am told that uh, of a group of three um, and someone is referred to as a they, I have to ask how many people are the they, which is a question I never had to ask before. I mean, you don't know yeah, how yeah. many people are actually applying for something. Is it one person who's right. a they? Is it, you know, is it the person and their partner? What? What? It's very, as someone who, like you, believes that language is is a useful tool, can be used as a, as a big, heavy bat or as a scalpel, it's become very difficult to know what you're using. Yes. And I think, you know, there's a, the example that I always use is unhoused versus homeless. Oh, holy smokes. And, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, I, I'm happy to adjust. I'm, I happen to have a lot of language dexterity. And so fine. But this as a litmus test is absurd um, <laughs> because neither phrase actually gets people into housing. And I think that is the most important thing is like, what are you actually accomplishing? And there are so many revisions of language and like, don't use this term and do use this term. And often just lists of words that you, you know, that for one reason or another, people are saying not to use sometimes based on, you know, sort of false uh, antecedents of that word and sometimes based on true ones. But in the end, what I care about is how we actually improve the lives of people who need their lives to be improved. Like, have we fixed the thing? And if we haven't 
gotten unhoused people into housing, then the question of whether we're calling them homeless or unhoused seems to me like the most minor of points. Yeah, I um, I joined a co-op in my neighborhood that actually may never actually have a co-op because they get bogged down in things like um, the parking lot where they wanted to park um, construction equipment in order to convert this space to a a food co-op that would serve people who have money to buy groceries and people who use whatever food stamps are called now. I don't know what that language is either. There there was like a two-page discussion over moving our houseless neighbors out of the parking lot. And I just... And so add to the list, houseless. They're not homeless. They're yeah. houseless. They do have tents. They just don't have houses. And at this point, I just threw up my hands and said, I'm not giving this co-op any more money. Um, so so that was one of, one of the things where uh, the focus needs to sort of move, as you point out, to the outcome rather than the language. Uh, I also got in a fight right on this radio. Well, I should say I didn't get in a fight. I just horrified somebody for saying I'm not going to use the phrase pregnant people. I don't like it. I fought hard to be a pregnant or not pregnant woman, and I'm just not going to. And they got really angry. I I didn't care. So <laughs> I didn't well, care. I, yeah, I feel like always the the goal should be to be inclusive of as many people as possible. I said they could use pregnant people. Pregnant people and others was okay. Pregnant women and others was fine with me, but I wasn't going to take women out of the equation. I was happy to add in pregnant women and others uh, with the understanding that there are people who have uteruses who are no longer women or if they ever were women, uh, but I wasn't going to have... They keep wanting to take stuff away. That's the feeling that I often get with... um, with some of the language is that you don't you you don't get to be what you are. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think it's really important to that, you know, if the goal is to affirm people in their identities, whatever those identities are, that that includes affirming women who want to be referred to as women. Thank you. That that seems to be consistent with the general goal of, like, let's try and call people what they want to be called. Also, it it leaves you less open to, to being, to having people who with ill intent make fun of you, which, I mean, I don't mind if people want to make fun of me, but a lot of people really don't like it. Um, let's talk about... Well, and, yes. and I think, yeah, yes. I just the last point is that I think, you know, what often happens is that people who really agree with all the big concerns, like, agree that Trans people should have medical care for their pregnancies or anything else that's happening with them. Right. And they are on board for all of that. And then it, it, the debate over the language um, can end up kicking people out of your tent. There you go. Um, which which that, brings us to your first to your first point, which was coalitions require compromise. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I am very uncomfortable with litmus tests. And I think there's a lot of that right now, that if you don't agree with me on every single one of the issues that I have strong feelings about, then we can't work together. And this is, you know, if we want to look at kind of why is the right effective and the left has been less so, it's that we have had a really hard time having a big tent 
And, you know, there's a lot of talk about it, but there has not been enough actually walking the walk, which is like, I don't agree with you on any other issue, but this one issue I agree with you on. And so we're going to work together on this one topic and, uh, and get that win. And then, you know, we'll see if we can find some other things that we can work on, but at least we'll have the doors are open. The conversation can happen. And I get very sad when I see uh, a lot of what's happening right now is the litmus test is Israel-Palestine. And I'm seeing, uh, you know, primarily Jews who are, you know, have feelings of love for Israel, regardless of whether they have love for the Israeli government. Um, which, know, which people, by the way, you could explain to people here by saying there are a lot of people who love America who have great difficulty with the Trump government. Same problem. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And and so, you know, but that is right in this present moment is a litmus test that is getting lots of people kicked out of the tent. And that seems just, you know, like a waste to me when uh, we got a lot of things we got to do, including, you know, not have fascism in this country. And so it would be good if we could work together on the places that we agree. Yeah, there is there seems to be an unwillingness on the part of people on various issues to agree that they can have a conversation about one thing and then they can put something else to the side and say, we're not going to talk about X. I have a friend, I, I truly love this friend, and this friend has a particular view on vaccines, which is opposite mine. And mm-hmm. my, my friend sends a lot of email from places, sources, sites that I, I don't give a lot of, of credibility, don't invest with a lot of credibility. And and I've I've said to this person, you know, we need to just agree not to discuss that because we have lots of other things we can talk about, yeah. the personal, other aspects, but not that. And it seems very odd to me that there are people who don't want to talk to you about anything unless they can talk about a particular thing. I, I What do you suppose is behind that? Well, you know, part of the reason that this was directed towards young progressives is because some of this is just being young, right? And like, I've, since this piece came out, I've had a lot of conversations with people that I knew as a campus activist when I was in college. And we were like, yeah, we, we did these things too. Uh, we had purity tests and we felt like, you know, so passionately about the justice of certain positions that it seems like anybody who didn't feel the same way was immoral. And so, you know, I think that is partly just how life is when you're young and you have yet to have lived long enough to see the shades of gray. Um, Well, then how do you explain the U.S. Congress right now on the Republican side with poor Kevin McCarthy and Johnson? I've never thought I'd say the words poor Kevin McCarthy. I I may have to roll that back. But um, how do you? Yeah. You know what? I revise that statement. The heck with Kevin McCarthy. He got what he had coming to him. And yet um, I was kind of. This schadenfreude is not a good place to be where we're just as as excited when the Republicans shoot themselves in in the foot as as we are horrified when we do it to ourselves. What is is it finally come to pass that both parties are equally in the soup? Yes, I would say that, 
you know, we've had a lot of forces that have increased the amount of extremism and the partisanship in this country. One of those forces being social media that has created these self-reinforcing bubbles that uh, create more extreme positions. There's a ton of research that shows that when people are in an environment where they only have people around them who feel exactly the way that they do, they tend to move further into the direction of their position. So we're, we're actually only, we're actually seeing that physically in this country where there are data that show that people are moving to where their physical neighbors are going to be more politically like them, which is the yes. ultimate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then social media really reinforces that because social media ag- algorithms are designed to create strong emotional responses. And so the more you have a strong emotional response, the more the algorithm will deliver more of the same because they want to kind of goose an emotion out of you to keep you engaged with the platform. So what would you, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, just, you know, we end up being angry and afraid and sad all the time and being delivered information about how terrible the people who don't agree with us on every issue are. Well, let's let's pick and before we move to one of your next of the six. What what would you advise for someone who's been active in a group and all of a sudden there seems to be a purity test that excludes you? Do you have any advice for people in a group like that? I think that naming it is really important, you know, that I think a lot of times you can reach out to kind of the higher capacity of human beings when you say, I don't think we should have purity tests. I think that I agree with you and I wish that you could accept me for somebody who doesn't agree with you on all of the, on this one issue because we have so much else in common. Can I tell I, you, you the, know, the meanest thing I ever did to people who didn't agree with me about something? Of course. <laughs> I it's just really mean. I can't help myself. There were some people who brought a political candidate I found objectionable to a place that was not political. And I didn't expect this person to be there. And I was shocked and, and not too pleased that, that this non-political occasion had all of a sudden been politicized by the presence of this particular person. Mm-hmm. And I took the hosts aside and I said, oh God, I loved doing this, Dashka. I said, you know, I said, this is my safe space and I don't feel safe with this person in my space. And they, they looked at me like, holy smokes, I violated somebody's safe space. By the way, I don't typically believe in safe spaces. I just. Yes, yeah. I, I know this about you. <laughs> yes. The heck with your safe space. Um, but but uh, I just it was fun to watch the nomenclature just smack them right in the face. So that was enjoyable for me. Um, I just had to confess that right here on the radio for I just had to do no that. one will know. No, no one will one, know. You know that, your secret is safe. Thank you. That's what I love about doing radio. Let's go to uh, and. and um, Let's go to, well, what do you want to talk about next? You've got, we've got four more points to get through. Shame doesn't teach. If voting didn't matter, they wouldn't be trying to stop you from doing it. Uh, it's the boring stuff that affects people's, well, you wrote impacts, but I can't, that affects people's lives. It's okay not to have the answers. What, what's your next favorite? 
Well, let's talk about shame because this is so much part of the life of young people and the life of anybody who spends time online is this, you know, naming and shaming and calling people out. And I, it is the thing that probably makes me the saddest of any of this because it's so unhelpful to get back to your example of the guy who said ladies and gentlemen and, you know, teachable moment that was not used to teach. And so often young people in particular don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation with an older person for reasons that I understand. It's like, it's tough when you're a young person to be like, now I have to go confront my professor, like awkward. So I understand that. And that's what this work is about. Like that is how you do things in a justice-based society is you give people the chance to do better and you don't like kick them out of your life or your job or, you know, all the different ways that we have to sort of um, jettison people who in some way have offended our sensibilities. That that's and a good so, one, and you can circle back. Yeah. By the way, to your earlier um, your earlier point about language, where you can say, you know, that that was difficult for me. Um, can we talk about this in a different in a different way? Because I'm sure you did not mean to make somebody feel bad or to exclude people or to you know whatever. You, you can. I guess what I would say about your shame doesn't teach. It assumes the worst about people. Yeah. It doesn't as- ascribe a good motive to them. And if I had to pick one thing that's been the biggest uh, schism in the social life of this country, it's the assumption that people don't mean well. That That's the one that yeah. gets me. So I would file that under your shame doesn't teach point. I agree completely. You know, and of course, you know, there's plenty of caveats. Like sometimes people really don't mean well. And sometimes, you know, somebody is so powerful and insulated from input that the only way that you're ever going to, you know, be able to reach them is by having some kind of public statement. You know, that is certainly it's hard to call out a, you know, presidential candidate by taking them aside and saying, hey, when you said that I want to, you know, have blood purity, for example, in this country, that felt kind of Hitlery to me. You know, maybe you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, so, pro- well, probably sure. not. That has to be done in public. <laughs> and which dovetails nicely with point number four that you made. If voting didn't matter, they wouldn't be trying to stop you from doing it. Yeah, Um and this is, I think, one of the reasons that this post was, you know, made such an impact is that I think many of us olds are really, really nervous about the youngs not showing up in November. You know, as they have been you, threatening to you, do. You do know. I guess you might not. I talked about this on Saturday. There was a convention of Muslim Americans here in Chicago, and a subgroup of them mounted the Abandon Biden campaign. And a professor from the University of Minnesota was actually quoted as having said, "It doesn't matter if Trump wins. We will. They will know where we stand." And I, I thought to myself, "What?" <laughs> Yeah. What? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was those, that is very alarming. And, you know, there's some of this is just rhetoric that people are saying so that they can, you know, get the attention 
of the representatives that they want to notice them. And that's, you know, that's what you have to do as an advocate. So sure, you know, scream loud. But you still have to, in the end, understand that the lesser of two evils is significantly better than the greater of two evils. And I think that we saw that. I think we have now, we should have the experience that was recent enough to remember that we saw a lot of basic norms uh, trampled in the past few years and that we might not want to have those happen again. And so uh, voting, I've worked on enough campaigns, and you probably have too, that have been decided by very few votes. And so like, every single vote really does matter. And we know that because there's all kinds of initiatives that are uh, happening at the state level to keep people from voting to make it more difficult and particularly to stop college students from voting. So um, clearly those votes are important. Yes. And, and I guess with, with the last few minutes um, let's talk about it's the boring stuff that affects people's lives. Yeah, this is just, you know, it's, a typical old person. Why do you keep calling yourself an old person? This is, you got, I mean, come on now. The median life expectancy, I think, is now up to something approaching 90. So by that, that yardstick, oh, yeah. you're, you're not I'm even so, close. Yeah. No, yeah, you're a sprout. But I am talking to people who probably think of me as old. And mm, so that's their hard um, luck. You know, and I think it's you know, that one of the things that's hard when you're young and impatient and you see uh, everything through this sense of urgency, which, by the way, is legitimate. Like the planet is on fire and we there's lots of action that we need to take swiftly. And uh, a lot of the things that actually change how people feel in their lives, whether they have housing, whether they have uh, air that's safe to breathe, uh, whether their kids are getting the education that they deserve. Like all of those things are buried in wonky details that are decided by the members of you know, commissions and committees that most people haven't heard of. And so uh, all, so this is just kind of a bid for let's understand how difficult it is to create good policy that creates good outcomes and that the stuff that is everybody's talking about on social media is often not really the important things in terms of how people's lives are lived. Well, and it circles back to the first point about compromise, that a lot of the yeah. rules and laws and policies that will affect your life, uh, you don't get all of the pie. You just get enough of it to sustain you. And then maybe next time you can figure out a way to bake a bigger pie. Um, but yeah, it's the wonky. And you hear it's these purity tests again. We didn't get all of what we wanted. So we're not going to yeah. support it. And it's disappointing. It's it's a hard time to be a progressive. It's a hard time to even be a mainline mainstream uh, Democrat, which is which is kind of my role around here. So I'm glad you mentioned we didn't get to all of your points, but I really encourage people. Where can they find your Substack with the whole six points, other than my Facebook page where I reposted them? 
you can find it just by going to Substack and uh, putting my name into the search bar. I have two Substacks. One is about writing and children's books, and one is uh, about justice and accountability. It's on that second one, which is called a sigh of relief. Okay. And a sigh so, of relief uh, by Dashka Slater. A sigh of relief by Dashka Slater. Now you have it. Thanks a bunch, Dashka. I'm so glad you wrote that, and I'm glad you spent time with us on WCPT. Thanks so much. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. We are approaching... 305. I am Tori Ryder. Not quite 305 in case you've got one of those little... You know, that's the problem. You used to be able to round up or round down. There's no compromise on time anymore. It's like we all have to work for NASA. We all have to be very specific. Joan comes back Monday. If you want to find me off this radio station, I'm not asking if you want to kick me off this radio station. If you want to find me when I'm not on this radio station, you can Google my name, T-U-R-I, Ryder, like the truck. And I'm on several of the socials. And yes, that is my book. And yes, uh, that is my podcast, which, believe it or not, is absolutely not political. Strange but true. Speaking of specific, there are few occupations where specificity is as important as architecture, which is possibly one reason why you appreciate a beautiful building so much. And here in Chicago, there are so many places and ways that you can look at something and say, how did they do that or why did they do that? Just driving to work, as I do, um, just coming down, if I come down Foster Street, there are little details on buildings where I think to myself, well, how did they do that? And why did they do that? Which is one great thing about the Chicago Architecture Center. They help you answer those questions and appreciate things you might not even have noticed about our architecture. So it's interesting to find out that the there is going to be something called the 2024 Architecture and Design Film Festival. And to tell us about that, I would like to introduce you to Ms. Eleanor Gorski. She is the president and CEO of the Chicago Architecture Center. Welcome, Ms. Gorski. Thank you for being with us. Hi. Thank you, Tori. This is an honor to be here with you today. Tell me about this film festival. Is it just films that we normally would see that have cool architecture in them? Or is it uh, films about architecture? Or how did they build that building? Or how did they build that, design that stuff? Or about the lives of great... Where does this begin? Well, that's a great question. This is our second year doing this. And this film festival is actually an international festival. And it's shown in multiple cities, major cities around the globe. And different filmmakers um, vie for the honor of being included in the film fest. So it's not typically commercial movies. Like, we all know The Fugitive and try to identify the Chicago buildings that are in that movie, right? Right. That's a different type of film fest we would have. Um, but that gives me an idea we should do something like that. Um, but this is really new films, old films that are focused specifically on designers, the creative process, 
And what we have curated this year locally is looking at design and a larger context, basically how it influences our everyday life, like you described in the opening, as well as the emotions that architecture gives you, how it forms your everyday routines and how you go about um, those routines. As one often must do when listening to the radio. One must, and don't do this if you're driving, one must slap one's forehead and, and say to oneself, I didn't even know they made movies like that. What what kind of movies are these? Are these movies about, and I'm familiar, for example, with movies about Frank Lloyd Wright and his life, and I, I'm a little less familiar but aware of movies about designs for public housing that were meant to uh, make a statement about the value of shelter for people who didn't have a lot of money. But what what manner of films are these? What are they? Yeah, sure. I, I can give you a few examples. And I'm really excited about our opening night film. Um, there will be 20 shown starting on January 31st. And the 31st is our opening at the center. Um, we'll have two theaters that will be showing main films. And then downstairs in the center, we will have a series of shorts that are just very 10 shorts. They're very quick, and that is free and open to the public. There is a charge for the main films upstairs. But our opening night film is called Low Tech, and this is about an architecture firm. They're actually two Italians that studied in Italy and then came to the U.S. They teach at Columbia University, but their practice is centered around repurposing industrial um, and infrastructure containers and leftover parts, most recently shipping containers. Everyone has seen those and how they're reused, um, mainly for retail stores and other outlets in urban settings. And they had an example of their work in the Chicago Architectural Biennial, and a shipping container project is in the uh, Chicago Cultural Center. Um, so you can not only see a film about their creative process, you can see an actual project almost right across the street from the center. And did, they wait, will wait, actually wait. be they, there. Did they yeah. actually get a shipping container somehow yes. wedged into the Chicago Cultural Center? <laughs> they did. And that building is an older building. It was built as a library. So yes. it's built like a tank. I was married so, in that and, building back. That's oh, a, you yeah. Were. Oh, yeah. I used so to. So you know it well. I do. It was always my favorite building as a child. And I used to. Yeah. This story actually is my one story of Chicago clout is in my book. But the short version is. Um, by then it was the cultural center. I had been, I hounded my mother as a kid to get married in it. She said, it's the library. You can't get married in there. <laughs> and by the f- time that I was ready to get married, which was decades ago, uh, they tried to tell me I couldn't because I was going to have a religious ceremony. And from there, my only little piece of Chicago clout got used. And I did, in fact, get married. Now you can, oh. n- now you can. But, um, yeah, I love that building, but I'd be worried that a shipping container would whack into the Tiffany mosaic how how did they get a shipping container into the cultural center well it's small it's not a full-size shipping container and it's actually it's it's actually been devised as a stage for a single performer okay so it's just a sample of what they do okay but that's an example of one of the films it traces their creative process and looks at some of their projects and another kind of interesting human interest story that ties directly to chicago 
um, you have seen around the city are glass and steel skyscrapers that are modern. This came out of the tradition of Mies van der Rohe, who came from Germany in the 1950s to build these skyscrapers and teach at the Illinois Institute of Technology, now known as um, IIT or Illinois Tech. This is a story about his family that he actually ended up leaving behind in Germany to come here and do that work and then reconciling what it's like to have a famous parent like this and his architecture. And it provides the human um, interest behind a lot of these great architects and the works they create. So it's um, those are two examples about architecture. But also okay, wait, you, I'm going to pause you. I'm going to yeah. pause you and ask you. I mean, we yeah. all know that Frank Lloyd Wright was a great architect and kind of a rotten husband. Um, yeah. I, I just have to, well, I mean, if you don't know, just consider the fact that he built the family home and then a couple blocks away, he built a house for his mistress. So yeah. Um, but, but yeah. was, I had no idea that Mies van der Rohe had abandoned, a, I thought he was Dutch. I don't know why I thought that, but I, I, um, I had no idea that he had abandoned Ooh. his family to come here. Sounds like I'm going to see you at that film. Yeah, so, I'm going to have to meet you there. So this is like a, a whole, um, a, a whole deep yeah. festering sore in the in the Vandero family. They they, they expose well, all. No. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go that far. You know these these folks. Um, every these are artistic temperaments, and the people who grew up with these great artists and architects, they they learn to live with these personalities. So I wouldn't say it's going to be this tell all, but I'm sure there are certainly going to be emotions exposed in this. But I, I think it's this insight as to the challenges that these families and these architects face, too. I was the just human side of reading it. about one of these um, very famous architects whose longtime companion, mistress, was a very well-regarded landscape architect. And, yeah, and she did yeah. not get the credit she deserved um, and, and again, I guess the, the file for this is the Joan Baez quote about Bob Dylan and artists and nuisance to live with at home, I believe is the quote, um, <laughs> something like well, that. I'm probably misquoting, but yeah. Um, it's, it's funny you bring that up though, because we do have a film, um, by that architect's son, that um, I don't know how much it goes into. Um, that's Louis Kahn, who you're referencing. Mm-hmm. And we have a film by his son, and he will actually be here to talk about it. So that's another one that I hope you and your audience will join us at because, um, yes, he had a lover. He had a wife. Um, he had two families. So yes. these architects not only produced great work, but, you know, had uh, many different facets to their their lives. Um, so anyway, we have something for everyone. The one other um, film I, I do want to mention. I have to ask, um, yeah. because this come, came right from, from Andy, uh, My Architect, yeah. A Son's Journey, who's, who's filmed? That's it. That's the one. Uh, it's good, it. good to have educated people in this in this place. Okay, so that's another <laughs> film, not I, uh, who that is going to be shown. And you can, so if people want to go to the big fancy main film, I, 
I almost hate to say this to you, but sometimes I find that the events of the Chicago Architecture Center are are a little above the budgets of of many people. So I'm going to have to ask oh. you how much to to go to the main event films that that are you are justifiably proud of well, showing. Yeah, it's twenty dollars for members, and it's thirty dollars if you're not a member, just a member of the public. But remember, there is also um, a pre-showing of shorts that are on the first floor, and that's our Chicago gallery. It also highlights our uh, model of downtown Chicago, tells you about the history of Chicago. So that is free and open to the public. Anyone can come in. What about student things, senior things, any any opportunities for people who might not? have 40 bucks to go with a friend to a showing? Is there any opportunity for them to see it for less? You know what? We don't have that now, but let me see what I can work out. Go to our website at um, filmfest.architecture.org. We will be updating that and look for discounts. Good. Thank you for suggesting that. I would love, I mean, I think a lot of students cannot afford that. Not not to cast shade here. You guys do great work. I'm grateful for what you do. I don't I don't want to. But, you know, I happen to know some students who are like beans and rice and, you know, maybe getting down there on the on the CTA is is what they can manage. So and you want them to love the city and you want them to have the same appreciation that uh, that you all have and have developed over the years. So thank you for considering that. That would be great for people who want to go. I love it, for example, that even if you're a if you're a community college student in this town and you take one class, did you know you can go to uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art for free if you are a student? I didn't know that. Well, there you go. That's and I know, know that I've got a kid in Canada at school, just finished at University of Toronto up there, and the fine arts organizations, it's practically free if you are under 25. So I'm just putting that out there, just saying. Not that no, I, thank you. I, just, I think that's great. Important that you um, want support from these people. So, okay, let's back to the movies here. So you got two main features, and those are, let's go through those quickly, about about the Italians with the shipping containers. And what's the other right. one? What's the other? Is the Mies well, one. Right. That's, okay. our, it, that's by the design studio, Low Tech. And okay. then we have, like I said, the Mies family, mm-hmm. the Mies van der Rohe's. Mm-hmm. Um, plural. Mm-hmm. Those are the two films that we're really promoting, and especially the Meet Vanderos because of the Chicago connection. Sure, but then, but then others. You know, we talk. We have a movie about housing. One of the older movies that we have is called Emotional Architecture, and this talks about how architecture actually influenced this couple and love um, and their surroundings promoting that, which I think is lovely as well. It's, um, again, one of our older ones. And then we have one on design by Elliot Noyes. It documents his influence on IBM and designing modernism in terms of corporate logos, corporate design, and they were early precursors to Apple and all kind of that um, high-tech stuff that we have today. That is very cool. Are you going to have some people come in to talk about, one of the things I love the most is your architecture river cruises. And I, I love the docents because when you are on the boat, you, every ride is different. 
and they each mm-hmm. focus on different things that they love the most. Are there any films around Chicago that are in the works, in progress, that are covering some of the radical architectural changes that we're seeing now? Oh, about Chicago itself? I would say no. None of these are particularly dealing with Chicago. But what they all share is kind of the modernism that led into a lot of the designs that we now see in Chicago. Like I said, the the film by um, Noise, Modernism, Inc., talks about a lot of the industrial design we see. There's a movie about called Best in the World that deals about uh, a city and is it really the best city in the world, the haves and the have-nots. So a lot of these kind of talk about issues that we're dealing with in our city, but also in cities across, across the globe. So I would say there's none that specifically are about Chicago. Oh, well, I'd love to see some. Like, for example, there, there seems to have been... Uh, or there seem to have been a lot of buildings that were built by students of famous architects uh, who were people of color. There was a, an architect who built uh, Truman College. It looks a lot like a Mies van der Rohe modern structure, and I wanted to know who had yeah. built it. And I found out it was a black architect who did a lot of stuff around the city and really hasn't had an opportunity to have his name. And, of course, now I'm forgetting the name because I forget everybody's name uh, out there for uh, the public to acknowledge and to uh, give him his proper respect. He, he did a lot around here. Um, when, when people go, let's just broaden this out from the film festival. When people mm-hmm. come to the Chicago Architecture Center, what kinds of interactions do they have? What kind of questions are they asking? Um, and 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 also, what is the Architecture Center doing to acknowledge the contributions of non-white male architects? Yeah. Um, So the Architecture Center, the reason why I joined, and I've been here a year as the president, is we cover so many aspects of design, um, as well as so many different members of the public have offered, we have offerings for So we have a youth education program. We also have a teen education program. So those are separate. We also have adult education. And all three of those explore architecture generally and specifically in Chicago for those specific age groups. Now, in terms of recognizing um, architects of color, women, um, we have relationships with those um, organizations in Chicago and often hold joint programs. For example, there is a national organization of minority architects that we often hold joint programs with, and they also have an internship program for young adults. So we often work with them as well as firms to place kids now that are interested that may be from our more disadvantaged areas of Chicago into those programs and also so they can learn about their predecessors in the profession. That's really now, important. Educa- that yeah. is so important. We yeah. had somebody um, speaking with us about the engineering program. I want to say it was with Malcolm X 
one of the community colleges and they're feeding um, students right into the University of Illinois engineering school. So it sounds like you're doing something similar there at the Chicago Architecture Center, preparing young people to have these careers. And and I should also say that not all creative architects are horrible husbands, wives, sons, daughters. So (laughs) if if you are on like match.com, just don't scroll right past the architect necessarily. First, check to see if they are available, really, and and then make your decision after that. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Oh, yeah, we've totally, right. we totally made all the architects look like any single architect. <sighs> yeah, this has been the biggest, like, do not date uh, half hour ever oh in media, God. I think. <laughs> well, I'm an architect, too, by the way. Are so. you single? We need to know. Are, are you a single person? <sighs> You know, um, I didn't answer your question, though. Oh, about, no, wait, you um, haven't answered how- my question about whether you're single. <laughs> I am single and okay. no other comment. And, and no no other <laughs> hid, hidden secret family that you no, need. Okay, you'll okay. have to wait for the feature film to come out. Okay, all right. You took that very well, Ms. Gorski. You, you, you adjusted to that nicely. What else did you want to say? <laughs> Um, I did want to say that there is a movement in Chicago to recognize architects of color. And before coming to the Architecture Center, I was with the Chicago Landmarks Commission. And um, the recognition of not just buildings that were created by folks that had previously been unrecognized, but also by clients who had been unrecognized or community groups and cultural groups who commission buildings to symbolize, um, you know, what their community is doing in a neighborhood, like the whole neighborhood of Pilsen, um, ah. community centers that were built for, you know, um, European ethnic groups that came over that may not be architecturally significant with a capital A, but mean a lot to the city in terms of advancing our culture and our history. Those have also become um Important, And I think that we at the Architecture Center are looking at architecture differently and how we interpret things on our walking tours as well as the boat tours to take all of that into account. So every time you come in, you're going to see something different. It's so great that you said that because just for example, to, to piggyback on this idea that there's architecture that may not be textbook cutting edge, but that is significant from um, from a community standpoint. I know one of the things that's fun are the pe- the non-professionals who have collected history of black churches or history of the tide houses. Yeah. I love those tide houses. Yeah. Uh, can, you, somebody probably should explain. Can you quickly explain what those are? Because you would do it better yeah. than I. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, you know, breweries in Chicago had what they called tide houses where they would sell their product in different neighborhoods and each brewery had their own house rather than where you go to a bar now and you can go in and get 10 different brews. You could get one from Schlitz. Or, you know, I don't know what, whatever old style, right, is going to have their own bar, their own tide house. So they were very prolific because in every working class neighborhood that you had three or four different breweries, each one had their own house. And you'll see the Schlitz logos 
around town even now on some of these that survive, and those have been landmarked as a group to kind of memorialize that tradition and that history of Chicago. Yeah, I think Shuba's is the one that most people have right. seen, and there's one in Uptown. I, I believe, and I could be wrong about this, I believe that the Tide Houses were also in part a response to Chicago's effort to clean up its saloons, and they passed some laws oh, sure. that made it difficult to open a saloon, but the beer companies could open their own um that makes sense. Like a factory outlet. Like when you go to the Jelly Belly Jelly Bean manufacturer and they give you a big scoop and then you can go to the store. <laughs> so same idea. It's been a pleasure yeah. having you on. And I and I hope that we haven't frightened you too badly. Jo- Joan, whose show this usually is, is a lot, a lot nicer than I am. And so even... Oh, I've enjoyed it. I had a great time. And again, the festival begins on the 31st of this month. And right. if people want to know more about it and look for discounts, which I am advised may possibly <laughs> be coming, they should go to which website? Filmfest.architecture.org. And just a quick reminder, we are at 111 East Wacker, accessible via Metra, the city's pedway system, and we have parking in our building, perfect for our cold Chicago outing. Yes, and the, and the bus stops right at the corner if you take the Michigan Avenue bus. Absolutely. You're right there. Yep. Thank you so much for being part of the show today and being such a good sport. And, uh, of course. And we'll talk to you again. WCPT, right. it's Chicago's live local and progressive station. I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan Esposito, Andy at the controls, Julia at the booking producer station and you're stuck with me until uh, five o'clock when when uh patty has a day off and paul faravar will be in to drive you home this is chicago's progressive talk 8 20 a.m wcpt willow springs and online at wcpt 820.com where facts matter joan esposito live local and progressive Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. I am in for Joan Esposito the rest of today, tomorrow, Friday as well. And then following me, driving it home today, Paul Faravar filling in for Patty Vasquez. Promised you an inside take, uh, in a manner of speaking, on the headline story on so many news sites. We are speaking of the dismissal slash resignation of Professor Claudine Gay, first black president of Harvard, shortest term president of Harvard, I believe nine months Undone by allegations of plagiarism and also um, the the match that lit that flame. Her lawyerly, I think, was the best description that I read. Testimony in the to a congressional committee about uh, anti-Semitism on the Harvard campus. Joining me, my dear friend and highly accoladed uh, author, chair of the history department at Rutgers Newark, Harvard. Did you get one of your degrees from Harvard, Burl? One of them? Harvard, Harvard Divinity School. Harvard one of my Divinity School graduate. Uh, Chicago, born and bred. And you should read her book, Family Properties, which if you want a history of race and real estate in Chicago, she's a Guggenheim awardee, a Carnegie awardee. And if anybody should know about plagiarism and what you really can get away with and this whole scandal, it's Dr. Burl Satter. Thank you for being on the show with me today. I always love talking to you. 
Well, thank you for inviting me, Terry. So, um, since I lit this this little wick and told you that we were going to be speaking about Dr. Gay, um, let me just ask you right at the start, how much of this do you think is about um, the big donors and right-wing activists going after her for her lack of political savvy, if you will, uh, or her lack of willingness to tackle um definite current of anti-Semitism on her campus, and how much of this is a legit complaint about her scholarship and her uh, and allegations of plagiarism in her work? My uh, outside perspective is that it's 98% maybe uh, outside donors pressuring her, and maybe 1% to 2% um, some questions about the work, and there's a lot of reasons for me to take that um, estimate. Um, Essentially, no one is saying that she stole anyone's ideas. The questions that they've raised have been about um, citation and citations. You know, I know when I write a book, I have thousands of citations. I have thousands and thousands of footnotes. And that's a place where you could, you know, realistically and with no ill intent, occasionally forget one of the, you know, 800, 900 citations um, that you, you describe something and the footnote is either inadequate or not perfect. It's kind of a mechanical thing. So to have someone lose their position over something like that, when no one is saying the problem was um, her ideas were faulty, she lifted someone else's ideas, even that she lifted someone else's prose, not in any sort of you know, it's in the most sort of minor mechanical way that she had to have a, a sentence um, about being pushed in some way in the acknowledgments. These are like half sentences, tiny things. And, you know, when you read hundreds and hundreds of, of um, sources to, to build your work upon, you know, you can sometimes lose track of um, the exact wording. So, you know, know when there's substantial plagiarism. Then you could say, here's a paragraph, here's a paragraph. It's the same. You know, they didn't... Uh, Acknowledge the source, and and that's the problem. Um, she was probably a little bit uh, rushed or something, um, but this is someone who won best dissertation at, from Stanford um, as an undergraduate, and then best in economics, and then best thesis uh, for her PhD in political science. And I don't see anyone saying that the work is sloppy, that the ideas are faulty, that the methodology is flawed. There's nothing like that. Instead, it's, you know, we surveyed every word she wrote, and we found a few instances where the citations were, uh, there should have been more, you know, a more complete citation. So to me, that does sound more like a witch hunt than any kind of um, legitimate question about her scholarly abilities. Yeah, that seemed to me like they, they couldn't get her off by just saying, we're rich, we're not giving you any money, we don't like your politics, and so we're going we're gonna to punish you. Um, this made it look like it was a fair and square deal. And, and from where I sit, I would be more prepared to have the conversation about her leadership and, and seeming unawareness of how some of the things she said and did uh, played in the public sphere because Harvard, while a private school, lives very much in the in the public 
light. And that's what you can expect if you're leading the number mm-hmm. one internationally highly regarded or at least one of the top five academic institutions in the world. So you and I agree we can just throw away this horsewash about um, scholarship because that's just the cudgel that they happened to seize to beat her about the ears with. If I got that right then? Absolutely. And I think your phrasing of it, your, your framing of it is much more about public relations, um, you know, messaging, um, leadership certainly makes a lot more sense. But that would be more of an honest, straightforward fight. And that's not what they're, you know, that that's not what happened, unfortunately. It, it is unfortunate. And, and, and with AI, you can run every single word that every single person has ever published through a, a comparison of just about every other piece of literature published scholarly work in the field. And it's almost like a reverse thousand monkey thing. If you run everybody's work through this stuff often enough, you're going to find a phrase that somebody else probably wrote. Um, that that's my belief anyway. Would that be an unreasonable belief? No, I think that that makes perfect sense. Again, that's the distinction between finding, you know, a sentence here and there um, that is copied from someone else's sentence and a framing of ideas, a uh, methodological strategy and an argument uh, that's lifted from someone else. Those are two very different things. One matters. One is uh, easily um, a product of overwork, you know, lack of time, something like that. They're very, very different. And no one is making that distinction. I, I did see one person who said, look, she's a statistician and none of her data are flawed and none of her points are, are flawed. So let's move on to the politics. I, I know that you are um, you're one of those folks who has actually made a statement with your career about your views about uh, culture, society, race, politics, starting from, and this is where I get to, this is where I get to brag about how long I've known my friend Burl. Uh, she was at the University of Chicago and felt that their scholarship didn't embrace the role of women in history. And you basically told them they could stuff their university up their nose and went to Barnard. Do I have that right? That is correct. Now, of course, this was 1977. So um, Chicago at that point was really lagging behind in uh, taking uh, women's history seriously. I think they've caught up, but that was that was then. Yeah. So. And so and so you've you have often been um, sensitive to the politics of the university. And as a department chair, likewise, you have had to be sensitive to the politics of the department that you chair. So did you follow the um, congressional hearings that featured these uh, presidents of MIT, Penn, and Harvard, respectively? I did not watch the hearings. I only read the news summaries. So, you know, I can't um, I can't speak to, to how they played out as a whole, though it's pretty clear that there was a lot of sort of badgering and hectoring and chasing about. It wasn't you know, then you get once then you get your golden sentence that you play endlessly, and I, I assume that that was the uh, situation here. That's exactly that is exactly Elise Stefanik, who is, as far as I'm concerned, bat excrement crazy, although really, really, really smart, went after these these three presidents. And they were already being hectored, as uh, to use your word, um, by big donors, um, and and in a weird way. Um, well, why don't you talk about how much a university president should be 
uh, conversant in, in, in how their words and positions will be interpreted. Because as I look at it, the biggest problem for all of these presidents, the, all three of them, was that they really didn't get that they weren't just running their university. They were running their university in a fishbowl. They were running their university not just for the professors and students and research of the university, but also out in the world. And the things that they did and the positions that they took or the lack of positions that they took were going to be parsed by the media, the public, and a lot of people whose politics um, were, were very extreme. Uh how would you agree with that or, or disagree? I think the uh, fishbowl aspect of being a university president is fairly new. And I don't think it's it should be expected that they should be perfect at these kinds of national uh, discourses and national political Tensions. Um, a university president has to answer to the Board of Governors in a public university uh, at Harvard. It's the Harvard Corporation. They are, and their job is often to, on one hand, you know, mediate between the people who actually, you know, have power in the university. Uh, that is, again, um, in, in Harvard's case, the Harvard Corporation, whoever they are. Um, and on the other hand, you know, the faculty and um, the, the administration of the university. They are mainly fundraisers often, um, so they're very public-facing, but they're usually public-facing within, you know, a, a shared mindset about the value of their school and um, and its needs, you know, kind of pedestrian needs often. So now, with the attack on public education or higher education especially, um, it's gotten so much more polarizing and politicized. And, yeah, perhaps they need to be trained in that way. But I don't think, you know, that skill set is not necessarily the same as the skill set that you need to efficiently uh, raise money for your school from alumni often and um, manage the school, you know, administer the school. And that's why another reason why this whole emphasis on the um, a, a few um Citations that 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 didn't that weren't a few, a few uh, pieces that weren't as quickly cited is a kind of a misreading of what a university president's job is in any case, which is you know far less about their scholarship once they get to that level and far more about being an administrator. Well, so okay. how how they were at that, you know, this was a situation that blew up, you know, in October. Uh, the three of them, all three of them, uh, fairly new at their jobs, women. People who, um, you know, they needed a different kind of training and they didn't get it. Would it be up to the board of a university if they're supporting the president to say you need some PR training? You're going to you know, this is the world we're living in now. Uh, would that be an appropriate thing to offer? A lot of executives are offered uh, training in these sorts of things, uh, or maybe they should have taken it on themselves to learn this skill. That's one question mm-hmm. I have. And then the other question is, uh, various pushing and pulling has been done uh, in the media about whether big donors are in are right to be saying, I don't. I don't think your political view um, allowing certain political groups on campus, or to have hateful seminars that we don't like, or to have uh, movie presentations featuring unpopular views, or at least views that we don't like. Do you think it's? 
I mean, of course, it's allowed. It's their money. They can do what they want with it. But but is that part of the tectonic political shift of university boards or has it always been like that? And and the rest of us just sort of missed that these board members were always trying to uh, kind of turn the steering wheel in favor of their particular politics. So the first question was about whether they would have benefited from a more uh, careful training and um, uh, in how to conduct themselves uh, in under a national spotlight. Oh, yeah, sure, that would be great. That's hindsight, though. You know, now we can say that would have been a wonderful thing. Um, maybe they'll do that going forward as education gets more and more polarized and politicized. But the second question about the role of the big donors. I have been teaching at my school, Rutgers University in Newark, for 32 years. And what I've observed over this time is the slashing and slashing and slashing of public funding for my public university, which in turn leads to far more dependence on uh, alumni fundraising and uh, fundraising of all sorts. You know, now we have a big office of fundraising. We didn't, I mean, well, we always had something, but it's like growing in importance as the state, New Jersey, withdraws its support for the education of its own citizens. So I feel like as the more that happens across the country in schools, both public and private, I mean, obviously public schools, the big problem is the, is the, the cutting of state funding. But um, in private universities, you know, they, too, face certain financial stresses and then are dependent on these donors. Now, I see a real danger here because the donors have, um, you know, no academic ex- expertise. Uh, they think that because they have money, they have knowledge. That's not the case, <laughs> yes. you know. Frequently, and, people do assume that. Yes, I'm rich, therefore yeah, think, I know. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Let me look at, again, look at Elon Musk, you know, thinks he's a genius. And, you know, uh, he's wrecking havoc, uh, you know, everywhere that he's stumbling into um, because he assumes he can do no wrong. So this is a terrible mindset. These people have too much money and they have way too much influence. And this has been going on. For a while, I'd say probably since the 90s, I mean, the, the big example is the Koch brothers um, and their dominance of uh, George Mason University in um, D- the D.C. area. Um, but I think it's more and more a trend that uh, desperate academic institutions are willing to make bad deals with donors um, it's around who they hire. Uh, which programs get, um, you know, resources and, and get promoted, which ones get starved, that kind of thing. And it's, I think what we are seeing right now, it shows how, um, what a bad idea that is. We fought for faculty self-governance for a long time, and we have it minimally, and um, we have no power relative to these billionaires who have utter confidence that they can throw their weight around. And I feel like if anything um, good can come out of this devastating um, series of events um, around these colleges, colleges and college presidents, um, it would be to take a good look at the donors and um, put some safeguards around them uh, exercising outside influence, which they have no right to do. Well, let's let, let's let's. Um Let's look a little bit because Harvard, Harvard has an endowment that is so big by all reports, if they never got another dime from any of these people, 
they could last longer than the planet may last and 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 furthermore charge no tuition whatsoever so i mean it's billions it's like it's bigger than many countries so should a board of a place like that that doesn't even should the president of a board that has a place like that have a little more would you imagine that would afford the president a little more clout or it's just the same because she's hired and fired at their whim well, you know, again, presidents are have far less independence than one would think. You know, they are answerable to a board, a board of governors, uh, a corporate board, some sort of board that has the real power in the university. So if that board feels beholden or in sympathy with or for whatever reason is highly uncritical of massive donors, then the president doesn't have much power to stop it. Um, I think the case of Harvard, it's absurd that they caved in this way. Um, they didn't cave in the beginning. Um, I'm sure there were political calculations, you know, that I'm unaware of. Um, of these, the boards of these universities, sometimes we don't even know who's on them, you know, much less, you well, know, how Harvard's they Harvard's is now public, but it, it public? There, oh, there is, yes. But um, there was a meeting that was uh, between some of the board and the faculty that was that sounds like it was it it was it it went just as you would have expected with the faculty saying this is going to set a bad example uh, but you have to do something which brings me to my next question um i think that we can pretty well see now that there has been a rising tide of um prejudice anti-Semitism on some campuses, campuses anti-Muslim uh, speech and behavior. And what are we to make of this? And what is the university's role in inviting or disinviting people to speak on campus? I'm not talking about the clubs. Well, maybe I am talking about the clubs. What am I talking about when, mm-hmm. when we say, you know, the equivalent of a Lyndon LaRouche should not be invited to your campus? And for those who don't know, he was the past generation's epitome of horrifying sexism, racism, bigotry. And I'm just using his and him as an example so I don't get into trouble with anybody. But, but who gets to say, you know, this club is this club on campus and you're advocating uh, racism or genocide or hatred, and, and therefore we're going to boot your club off campus? Mm-hmm. I mean, the questions, questions of free speech are complicated, and I think sort of simplistically saying, though, I'm for free, free speech and that's the end of it, it does not get to the complications of diverse campuses with diverse student bodies with um, very different political views and histories um, and um, senses of belonging. Um, so I think the claim of free speech, uh, absolute free speech, is it's an evasion in many ways. Um, the problem is that one person's free speech is another person's silence, uh, and that gets tricky. So, you know, there need to be clear, explicit, enforceable rules about what is, is and is not allowed um, in speech on campuses. And we don't, I don't think they really exist. Instead, it's sort of a murky sense that, you know, this one's over the line and this one isn't. Um, so that would probably be a process of negotiation to determine what those rules are. I mean, this, the idea that uh, if, if someone calls for genocide, would that be uh, problematic? I mean, I don't think 
Too many people come to campus. I hope no one ever comes to any campus calling for genocide of any any people anywhere. But, you know, um, you have to know, you know, what's a code, what's not a code, and um, and make sure you have a way to back up, you know, if you're claiming something is a code. So for for, for such a call, which, you know, I don't know. Um Who would be, is there a structure set up? I mean, I know there's an association of university professors. I'm guessing mm -hmm. there's some sort of group of university presidents or or no? There are all kinds of groups, all kinds of organizations. So there's all kinds of student uh, deanships and, you know, which who take a look and try to, you know, do caretaking of diverse students with diverse needs. So there's all kinds of administrative structures in place. Um, I think what's happened is, that um, pre-existing rules have been used in uneven ways um, uh, to um, handle, you know, distress, different groups' distress, and not in any kind of equal way, I don't think. I mean, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I don't really want to speculate um, too much when I, I don't have that much firsthand knowledge, but I know, um, you know, there's a tension between students who feel that if they don't act right now, you know, um, I mean, I'm thinking of the Students for Justice and Health, and, you know, they are motivated by a desire to, you know, stop a horrific situation in their, in, in their home, many of them in their home country. You know, for that, they feel they need to do disruption because the situation is spurring them. Other, uh, on the other side, you know, by, by their taking extra steps that they feel are motivated by the um, misery of the situation, uh, other people feel stepped on, like if they go into a classroom and chant or if they go into a library and, and, and protest. So, you know, you, this is a conflict. This is a free speech conflict, you know, and it needs to be adjudicated so that people, the students who um, are put out by the protest, you know, have some semblance of say and protection. Those who feel it's very important to, in fact, be in some ways disruptive uh, also have some semblance of protection. But there has to be rules. Where do you draw the line on what is allowed and what is not? And I, and that has those rules have to have to be consistently applied to all groups. Well, that sounds very reasonable. It would be lovely if if we could get to that place. I mean, at this point, there's disagreement about what actually constitutes, for example, genocide. I mean, that that is a. It's been a controversy for, for some time. I mean, some people will say it has to be willful. Some people will say it can be, you know, the result of, of accidental. Uh, it, it, the outcome is what matters. So these are the kinds of things that, um, it sounds like we need to do some work. Um, as a society and, and these academic institutions that have slightly different operating parameters. I mean, in a way, it, it's only starting to be really clear to parents that these schools are businesses um, <laughs> and that they, too, have some kind of a say in how uh, their their children will be educated and whether they have to confront anything that makes them uncomfortable. I, for, for my part, when my kids were looking at schools, I was very grateful grateful to see that, for example, the University of Chicago said, we pretty much have no safe spaces here if you don't like, if you don't feel safe on campus. But then they had to amend some of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm fine with so, it evolving. I just think the conversation needs to happen in a way where it's not at least Stefanik trying to trip people up and make a meme out of it. Of course. You know, but the 
problem is that the technology is changing so much, so the social media landscape is changing so rapidly, so that an idea that, you know, we don't need, you know, you, you can be exposed to anything uh, and we won't um, borrow anything, you know, it might work in, you know, in one moment and not in another when lack of protection leads to, you know, constant death threats and, you know, a, a flooding of your mail and phone so that you can't use either of them, which puts you at a serious disadvantage in trying to function as an academic or a student um, or administrator, whoever it is, you know, in your job. So, you know, that kind of pylon uh, response is, you know, last decade or so, and we need to catch up. And I think it's fine to say, you know, free speech is great, but I think people need safety and protection from outside mob attacks, you know, or there, in fact, there's no free speech. Like, it's not free if, you know, you're allowed to say it sort of, but no one's going to protect you from outside harassment and repercussions um, that are completely out of your control, can come from things that are taken widely out of context and manipulated for partisan purposes. So this is not easy. I don't know an easy answer, but I feel like the, the full reality has to be on the table when um, positions are crafted. And until they are, we end up always playing catch up and there's always casualties and always you know, more and more people feeling like damaged in this battle. And, you know, I think we're in a transitional moment and I'm hoping we can mature and find ways to have recent discussions. And that's what the academy is supposed to be for, where they a question about the meaning of genocide. Well, we look at the whole history of it and we, you know, look at the politics of it and how the how the concept came to be and how it's been used in different places. You know, that's how you figure it out. And then, you know, you if I were teaching such a course, I would say, you know, write, you know, uh, you give them an the student's assignment to write sort of a contrary view of versus the one they hold on the meaning of this term and other terms. That sounds like it sounds like you, you have perfectly articulated what we exactly needed to hear. So I really am grateful for your insight. I think that the idea that these things are happening at a different time and, and need different tools. Um, you've really set it out there. So thank you. Thank you for, okay. for doing all of that. That's Dr. Burl Sutter. She's chair of the history department at Rutgers, Newark. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Five minutes after four o'clock, I am Tori and for Joan. Joan returns on Monday. You get Joan in full, in total, her total attention on the 8th. She will be back. I'm here today, tomorrow, Friday. Thank you all for being with me. If you have not yet had a chance and you are at all a fan of live performance, storytelling, um, solo performance, you may have already seen the Filet of Solo Festival. I love the name. It's just fun to say it, Filet of Solo. Uh, and I, I guess, um, I don't know if they were back last year after COVID, but they're back this year. And to talk to us about the depth and breadth of the performers that you can take in starting on, I believe, the 13th of this month at Lifeline Theater 
I want to introduce you to two of the performers and uh, uh, administrators behind the event. You've already met on this show, Nestor Gomez, who is the master storyteller and uh, also the host of... Um, uh, several storytelling events around town. And then I'd like you to also meet Dorothy Milne. She, uh, well, I'll let you tell, uh, I'll let her tell you what her title is in this capacity. Welcome both of you to WCPT. Thank you for being here. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Dorothy, what is your title in the context of the Filet of Solo Festival? Uh, well, I guess you'd say co-curator maybe, uh, there, you know, we have a team, but it's, it's, we uh, pride ourselves in bringing in storytellers and storytelling groups from all over uh, Chicago and hosting them in one place. And so uh, sorting out who's going to be in it each year and, and helping people, um, you know, um, make decisions of the groups they're bringing in and the solo shows we bring in. I'm, I'm heavily involved in that as well as being... Um, a director of some shows and a performer in another. Oh, wow. You're just doing it. A lot of hats. Many, many hats. <laughs> many and, hats. And Nestor Gomez, welcome back to WCPT. I know you're an author and a storyteller. And what are you doing specifically for Filet of Solo this year? For Filet of Solo this year, uh, I'm gonna, um, we're going to be having two presentations of our is, uh, 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Storytelling Show which features the stories of immigrants, refugees, descendants, and their allies. Okay, so you're you're part of the outreach uh, to the different voices that may or may not have historically been as big a part of Filet of Solo as they're going to be this year, if I understand it correctly. Is this your second year back after COVID or your first year back after COVID? This is our second year. We had two years where we did... Um, we re- we recorded people in their living rooms and and broadcast that as as play and then last year we were back and this is our second year but Nestor has performed I don't know Nestor is at least a decade right at play of solo with um with his uh, group show as well as you know doing some one person shows and stuff too. So what is special so, about? I'll start with you, Dorothy. What is special about Filet of Solo as opposed to other theater festivals like Edinburgh or or other other groups of plays? Well, it's a very uh, specific form which is becoming more mainstream as people become acquainted with it. I always say, if you come and you see a storytelling show, you are likely to become. Uh, a devotee of the form. There's something very powerful about uh, telling a personal story and people in the audience see someone that doesn't look like them and seems to have a life very different. And that yet that story moves them and they feel a resonance with uh, what it's about. And so I feel it's a powerful form to connect people. uh, And there's a whole range of, of performers uh, of, a diversity of age and background. And uh, if you look at the website, you go, oh, there's something that's going to intrigue everybody. And so I hope people will come check it out. I know that. And I'm, and I'm going to ask you the next question, Esther, in a second. But I know that I saw some performances. I think you were at the Greenhouse Theater a while back. And I saw a very interesting performance about intergenerational conflict and addiction uh, drinking specifically uh, on a stage, and it was it wasn't even my world, but I learned 
and I laughed. It wasn't just all serious. It was, it was pretty funny. Um, actually, Nestor, what kinds of, um, specific immigrant stories are we looking at here? I think, I think people sometimes assume, well, it's all over the news. I've heard the immigrant stories. What, what is on offer at Filet of Solo that is, that is new that might catch people by surprise? Well, our immigration show will have two presentations, one on uh, January 13, another one on, on January 19, both of them at Lifeline Theater at 8 p.m. And the lineups for both shows is going to be different. But we we are going to be uh, featuring the stories, like I say, of immigrants, refugees, the descendants, and allies. And our in our stories are not basically just like, oh, I I I, I came to, to, to this country from, from this other country. Our stories are usually about family matters, about the things that we miss about our country, the things that are special to us, are stories that adult people that have, might not have anything to do with immigration or they don't relate to the immigration story, are stories about family separation, are stories about our customs, are stories about the things that make us a family, the things that everybody can relate to. So when you put up a show and you have so many different performers, just from a technical standpoint, how complex are the performances that um, that people will be seeing? Is it straight person and, and maybe some props or some different lighting? What What is provided for the performers? What do they bring to the show themselves that makes it different from a storytelling event, a straight-up storytelling event. I guess I'll, I'll ask that one of both of you, starting with Nestor. For 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 the 80-minute show, what, what we bring to the table, what we bring to Fileto Solo, is the experience of the immigration experience uh, told from a very personal perspective. We do personal narrative stories. We don't, uh, we don't use any uh, special images behind us. We just tell a story. And we build bridges from our story with, with the experience of our immigration uh, storytellers to other people in the audience. Okay. Dorothy, what about um, performers who want to bring additional elements into their performance? Well, any festival format has limits that way, but I'm also sort of a purist for the form. When somebody wants to bring in a living room set, I'm like, that, that isn't really the form. It is a storytelling show. And you can... Uh, you can uh, have some props and some projections or you people bring in musicians and have a musical element. But the, the, the true form is me standing, telling you a story and having an, an engagement with the audience that makes it a conversation almost. I see. So uh, it's, it's a, uh, we 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 just we discourage bringing in the the U-Haul with the props. Oh, that's funny that you should okay. say that because the show, the one that I saw, I think she used a hula hoop and a couple of, you know, just small things, and I I it it worked for her. If you can carry it in and out; it's fantastic. Oh, but if okay. it requires a scene change, it's going to hold up the next show. Got it. How, <laughs> how many shows are typically uh, up in a night? If you buy a ticket, what do you what do you see in the evening? If you managed to see the whole fest, you'd see about 120 performers. Wow. And on a Saturday, for instance, one, two, three, four, there are six shows on a Saturday. We start at one o'clock and the last show starts at 8.30. And that's two different venues. So you can't be in two places at once, but there's (laughs) 12 shows on a Saturday. And uh, 
10 shows, I think, on a Sunday. And, and we have Friday nights uh, as well. So this is huge. Four shows on a Friday night. So oh, it is huge. It is. <laughs> I didn't realize it was, it had grown again. It's been years. I didn't realize it had grown so vast. So literally there would be no way for somebody to see all the shows unless some of them are reprised. Like if you didn't see the second house's show on Saturday, you could see those on Sunday or you just can't, you just have to pick. Yeah. People carry charts because almost every show is done twice, ah. a couple of them three times, but and, but a few people were only available for one per performance. So there might be some hard choices to be made, but you can see most of them if you have those two weekends to dedicate to it. And we have people that do. They they make a little chart and they, they figure it all out and... And they hit almost everything. Can can you can you run from one venue to the other, or are they across town? No, it's only uh, about a block away. Oh, okay. You so, could sprint. You could get yeah. there. So yes, you totally can. And okay. we have we have a half hour between shows to make that not insane. And a bar. <laughs> I seem to remember there was also a bar in one of yeah. the venues. In case you just are overwhelmed, uh, you could just sit down and say, oh, "I'll have a cold one." So. Uh, yeah. we, we've acknowledged that there's going to be a, a, a theme and a presence of immigrant stories, family stories. What other kind of stories are people going to hear hear about in Filet of Solo this year? Well, we have uh, a, a range. Uh, Archie Jamjun's I Love Everything is, like you were kind of talking about, kind of a variety show. There's going to be, I think, circus elements there, but the core of it is storytelling throughout. Um, uh, the, the Generation Theater is all performers that are over 55 that, that have, um, it's a Goodman program and it's always fabulous. Uh, we have Spoken shows that should Wait, dance. Nestor wanted to add something. What, Nestor? Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah, the, 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 there's also a Spoken, which is the OGTB community uh, storytelling show. Ah, LGBTQ uh, okay. plus. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Keep going, Dorothy. Uh, and uh, Tell and Tales always participates with us, which its mission is to connect uh, the disability community uh, to the greater world. And, and that is always a part of their uh, performance. Uh, the Essential Workers, they're doing four stories of, about being on the front lines. Wow. And uh, in, in, in the work world. Um, big Shoulder Stories, that's going to be fun. She's pulled seven people from different important wor- work not, not-for-profits in the city, and they're telling personal stories, but they're also representing for groups like Refugee One or, or all these different groups that are doing phenomenal work in the city and... Uh, and they'll sort of represent for them too. It sounds um, like it sounds like you're you're taking in just almost funneling in from every place a, a really hugely diverse community of people who want to tell stories. But clearly, it's it is curated. Um, and and do you work with people who have an interesting story but haven't managed to craft the actual technique of standing up and telling a story in a meaningful way that has impact? Or do you refer them to programs where they can refine those stories? I know that Nestor does a lot of stuff with um, the moth, and the moth does work with people sometimes to enable them to tell their story in a way that has the greatest impact. Does Filet of Solo do that too? 
Um, yes, and yes, also, re- also to referring because many groups uh, represented to hear story sessions. Uh, uh, is this a thing? There's, there's a lot of groups, and certainly Nestor's group. He's working with new storytellers all the time. You know, yes. if you and these are groups that are actively uh, recruiting people who don't come from a performance background to tell their stories because everybody has a fascinating story to tell. And like you say, it's about crafting it. So sometimes, you know, sometimes we're able to work with somebody directly and other times we're like, these groups work with new storytellers, you know, get involved with them and come back next year. (laughs) You know, but, but yeah, it's, it's a form that truly um, is very welcoming and and come and see it and be inspired and get involved with a group where you can you can get up and craft a story for yourself. Are any of the stories available after the festival on media? Like you mentioned, you did stuff in people's living rooms one year. Are any of the stories archived so that people can see stories from years past or look forward to seeing stories if perhaps they can't attend this year? We record all the performances for the performers' use, and then they can decide if they want to do something with it. But the two years of the that we were virtual for the pandemic, we did uh, we did it that way. We were like, "Here's the website. You have three weeks to watch all this stuff." And my dream for this year, if we get everything recorded and all the performers um, agree to it, would be to um, go. Here's highlights of play of solo and do it in a few months or something. That's my hope is that we will be able to offer it because the benefit of that, the terrible time when we couldn't perform live was that, you know, people, you know, people's grandma in Poland could see it. You know, (laughs) people could see it all over the place and people, we did have audience um, tune in from all over the place. So that was really great. I'm really glad that we got a chance to to hear a little bit about it. Um, Give just the basics of where people can go to find out more. Uh, Yes, lifelinetheater.com. That's uh, where you can find it. Uh, if you go to lifelinetheater, that's a .com, and then you have a tab for the festival? Yeah, you'll see on our homepage, uh, you know, you'll see 27th Annual Play of Solo Festival, and you click on that, and it'll take you. You can see the schedule. You can look at a performance list. You can look at the performance be- venues. You can answer questions about accessibility. We have a, a we have a kickoff event on Wednesday, January 10th, where you can come and see like highlights of things oh, cool. and get a festival pass at a discount. That's Wednesday, January 10th. And that's at um, Rhapsody in on Morse Avenue. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks to both of you. Nestor, I'm really looking forward to hearing the voices that you're going to bring in. Dorothy, thank you for all of the work that you do. And uh, I might be in the audience for a good portion of it. I'm really grateful you're doing the work. That's Nestor Gomez, Dorothy Milne, uh, curators, conservators, promoters, instigators of the um, Filet of Solo. It's the 27th annual Filet of Solo Festival happening in just a few days, starting in just a few days here in Chicago. I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan Esposito. And uh, we will continue with some other stuff I meant to get to, didn't get a chance to get to. We're going to do that in a moment on WCPT. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. 
Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. We have some time to spend together, you and I, and I thought that I would look at some of your texts and share them with you, and then I wanted to, and, and I anticipate that we'll have an, an expert to speak about this um, this subject, uh, but I wanted to ask your thoughts about it as well. Um, let's go back and share some of the um, thoughts that you've shared on the on the chat. Uh, by the way, if you want to join on the chat, seven seven three seven six three WCPT. We were talking about with Dashka Slater earlier uh, her advice to young progressives and. Um, uh, the the, uh, the the usual naysayers who define um, progressive conversation as neoliberal crap trap clap trap I guess they would have felt comfortable with crap trap as well not progressive um, thanks for that useful and positive comment someone who wanted to um, note for me in the conversation about recycling and environmental recycling of your holiday lights that they believe they still do sell. Incandescent bulbs. I would be shocked, but hey, I'm shocked all the time. This is talk radio. So um, shocking is is not usually what I do, but you, the guests, the information, shocking all the time. Uh, this from Beth about um, the, the politicization of university directorships and corporations. Question. This uh, this has to raise the specter of racism in the Ivy League. How much are these schools really committed to equal opportunity from race and religion to cra- class? How much is window dressing? Certainly, um, when we were talking with the the resignation under pressure of Claudine Gay, um, I would say probably race had something to do with it. Although uh, sexism also probably, if you look at the Penn dismissal. Uh, she also points out that unless parents have at least a master's degree in all relevant subjects here, what is the claim to expertise? The wallet. So many tyrants like the wealthy donors are cool as long as they're not billionaires. You know, I, I want to respond to that because um, you are legitimately entitled as a parent who is being asked to spend tens of thousands of dollars to send your kid to a university, you are within your reasonable rights to say, I'm going to spend this money at an institution that is inclusive, or I want to send this, uh, spend these tens of thousands of dollars to a university that espouses a religious doctrine that's important for me to support in my children. I'm thinking of some of the Christian universities uh, and others. I know there are new Islamic universities. There are Jewish universities. I think it's reasonable for a parent to say, I want to send my kid to a place where there is uh, a structure that supports us in our religious observance. I mean, if for no other reason, let's just say that you wish to send your kid to an Islamic university that would create time for public prayer or acknowledge that there are times of the year that your student might be fasting. Or if you want to send your kid to a Jewish university, you might want to support your kid in going to a university where certain um, holidays would be observed and your kid wouldn't get in trouble for not turning in a paper during a holiday when they're not permitted to be doing any work, for example. So uh, aside from the mechanics of that, 
I think it's, I think it's very reasonable. I, I, it is a huge, it, it is an investment that you are making in your kids when you decide on college. And I want, I want to push back. Normally I agree with everything that this particular texter texts. Um, but I do want to say that I, I, I remember very clearly when the oldest of our two, um, had applied to a liberal arts college and they accepted him and they sent him a t-shirt and he said, Oh look, mom, a free t-shirt. And I said, that is not a free t-shirt. That's a tens of thousands of dollars a year t-shirt is what that is. These schools are absolutely businesses. They may be lovely businesses. They may be doing good things. I'm not talking about the public institutions now. I'm talking about the private ones. I want to make that distinction. But they are absolutely thinking about what kind of students will do well in their university setting. And they're also thinking about um, who's going to pay for all of that. Private universities in general, with the exception of super funded ones like Harvard, we've seen a lot of them go out of business, the small liberal arts colleges. So it, it is certainly up to the parent to consider whether the school uh, dismisses professors for uh, not towing a corporate line. And also, uh, it's important for schools to consider uh, whether they really support academic freedom, whether they are still offering um, tenure, and to whom? To whom are they offering tenure? It's a very rare thing now, tenure. I'd like to point out that uh, Claudine Gay is still still a tenured professor and will be publishing, writing, teaching, doing research, and is apparently quite beloved on the Harvard campus. In a moment, I want, I want your thoughts on the uh, change in administration in the Department of Juvenile Justice, Department of Children and Family Services here in Illinois. Just today, uh, we got a new an announcement anyway, that there will be somebody new heading that agency. And if you are an involved person who even just keeps an eye on the state's efforts to support kids who cannot be properly supported in their original home environments, I I would like to hear from you about what you think has been going wrong with the department, ways you might have, if you've tried to involve yourself, if you're a foster parent, adoptive parent from the foster care situation, uh, if your kid has run into trouble and needed state support services, I'd particularly like to hear from you. 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan Esposito. It's just about 4.30. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk. 820 AM. WCPT Willow Springs. And online at WCPT820.com. Where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. Just about 4.32, the Patty Vasquez show is going to be superbly helmed, I have no doubt, uh, by someone who is not Patty. All Faravar. Of course, nobody can do Patty like Patty, but Patty has a day off. So Paul Faravar will be in for her hosting the the drive 
to drive you home today. I'm just here to drive you a little bit nuts. I would love your thoughts if you have even glancingly as a teacher, a social worker, a parent of a foster kid, had any kind of interaction with DCFS, Department of Children and Family Services. We just found out today uh, that from February 1st, Heidi Mueller is going to take over from Mark D. Smith. He announced he would be stepping down. Uh, that was uh, not unexpected given the trouble that uh, DCFS has been uh, in lately. Uh, there have been numerous uh, sightings of contempt of court for improper placement of children who were under agency care. Uh, rates of abuse and neglect um, have been pointed out by investigators, lack of investigators, uh, and that got worse according to the data, under his tenure. And worst and most tragic yet, several children died while in agency care. So clearly something needed to be done. Um, I'm not sure even the best, I, I would just, let me just stipulate, I think all the people doing this job mean well. I don't think there's anybody who takes a job uh, in charge of children and family services who doesn't mean well. But I also think that under our previous governor, we didn't get a lot of financial support for these kids. And I also think that there are a lot of people who somehow think that magically this system should cost nothing. And we don't want to pay for the services that we know these kids need. By the time a kid is removed from a birth family situation, such a horrible, I mean, there's nobody where the DCFS wakes up in the morning and says, well, everything seems to be okay here, but the kid didn't get breakfast the other day, so we're putting him in foster care. That doesn't happen. We're looking at kids who are thrown out because of their sexual orientation, parents who are abusive to them or they're incapacitated by addiction. And so the kids come into the system with a fair helping, a pack full of trauma. And the state has not enabled professionals or hasn't funded a significant number of professionals to step up and do this work, which is why you get situations where it's essentially like children farms. I know of one system in in a different state, just as an example, where there was a very well-intentioned woman. How do I know about this? I suppose I should back up. We have two friends, a wife and wife, who have adopted twice from the foster care system of the state where they live, a state with an analogous population to ours, and analogous stresses on the system to the system in Illinois and a system where foster families quite understandably receive some fiscal support for taking on kids in order to make it easier for them. And and these two women adopted uh, the first kid. They, they were telling me, you know, you, you give the foster care system a list of 
all the things you don't want. And then, of course, they have to present you with the most difficult to place children. And, of course, you fall in love with one of these children and you say yes. And all the support services in the world help, but it doesn't make it easy. So the first child they adopted um, was a child that was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. He's a lovely young man today. He works. He's charming. He's sweet. He's, you know, enjoys life, enjoys his family. This second kid came from a family setting, a foster setting, where it was essentially a child farm. It was a woman who had figured out she was good-natured, she was willing, she was not an abusive person, she was not a mean person. She just had more kids under her care than any reasonable system should have allowed her to take. But the system was stressed, and it didn't have enough suitable homes. And so she had, I don't even remember, some huge number of kids uh, ranging in age from like 18 months to 12 And in very few situations can a couple take eight, nine, ten foster kids and really do. I'm not saying there's no one, but if you think of your own family and if you ever had children or if you were a child, you know it's not easy to raise kids. Well, imagine raising kids who come from trauma situations. It's that much harder. And in the case of my friends, they met a a young they met a toddler that that they were interested in adopting, and uh, we'll just call the toddler John. John wasn't talking. John wasn't talking at two and a half, which is late to not be talking at all. John's hearing tested by the state seemed to be okay, but John wasn't talking. And so the mothers asked the foster mother, have you attempted to assess why John's not talking? And she said, well, when he has something to say, he'll start talking. So there you have a situation where there's no intervention, no deep assessment, nobody really paying attention. And the upshot of it was that John had an oral motor handicap which wasn't diagnosed, leaving John behind the curve of communication and with a permanent speech impediment, none of which had to happen if you would have had a foster care system that was really adequately funded and staffed so people could pay attention. So we're all caught up in this idea that We need to immediately get involved in these abusive situations and violent situations where the the kids are in danger in their homes and they're not adequately supervised or removed and the parents get a class and then the kids go right back to these horrible situations or the foster families are dangerous. And all of that is true. If you are in the most extreme situations, yeah, that fire has to be put out first. But what I'm really hoping that the new chief of DCFS, Heidi Mueller, will be able to do starting February 1st is be given the resources in order to intervene not just in the most drastic and radical settings, but also in settings where there's just not enough support. There just is not enough work being done to enable people who might be able to 
take on a foster kid or run um, a foster setting or offer parental education so that it doesn't get to the critical point, so that the house is not literally or figuratively on fire. And on top of that, you might want to consider the terrible job that the state does of supporting kids when they age out of foster care. Something else we haven't really properly done. That work seems to be done, if at all now, by volunteers, volunteer organizations. And you you may laugh when I say this. And by the U.S. military. It says, you know what? You've aged out of foster care. There's no stipend for you. No one's going to pay for your college because you don't have parents who are going to pay for your college. So join the military. And that works for some kids. You may have had kids who went through that. You may be someone who went through that system. But we can do better than that. And to circle back to talking to uh, my friend Dashka Slater earlier in the show about compromise and negotiation and the really meaningful work that's being done, it's not just a department head. It's happening in the details. It's happening in the legislation that we're passing or not passing that is going to support these kids or not. Or not. So where would you start? What do you think is the most pressing need? What is the thing we should be doing first? What would be the thing that we need to assess first? Looking at some of the um, texts that are coming in, Looking at the number of claims, it's hard to spread them out. I had a student whose mom's boyfriend gave him a black eye. And on further exam, after months of contacting DCFS, brought a psychiatrist, I think, psychologist, unclear from the text, to interview him. When he crawled under a desk to show how he hid from this man, they finally did something. This is what it's come to. This is what it's come to. You have to demonstrate how you hide from a violent uh, partner. And and while I'm on the subject, because this isn't exactly the subject, can I say that I'm a little less than forgiving of people in domestic violence situations where there are children involved? Especially, um, well, I, w- I will tell you the story that, that really made me polarized. Around the corner from our house... There is supportive housing. It's a, it's a coalition between a nonprofit and the city. It's a beautiful building, well-kept, well-maintained. And a woman and her daughter lived there. She had left an abusive situation, and she was raising her daughter in this lovely building, supportive services. Uh, her ex-boyfriend, I believe, had been in prison for the level of violence that he had committed. And was capable of committing clearly again because he got out of jail, prison, 
And he went right back, as often happens in these situations, to this woman. And like many battered people, she took him back. She took him back. And one day, this was about seven, eight years ago, one day in the midst of some sort of um, violent altercation, he demanded various things and was violent in the home and she managed to escape with her daughter under the guise that she was going to go get cigarettes for him. He was demanding cigarettes and trashing the apartment and behaving in a dangerous way and she got out of there with her kid and then what did she do? She sent her daughter into the apartment with the cigarettes and the violent former boyfriend or whatever he thought he was at the time, murdered the kid and then became a fugitive in the neighborhood. And it was a whole big scene. And there was a whole group of people who said, we should feel terrible for this mother. She's lost her daughter. And I was one of these lonely people going, you know what? They ought to put her in jail too. These are the people whose kids need support from the system. On paper, the mother looked fine. But there's no system in place to keep somebody. If you want to endanger your own life, that's your own business. If you're legally connected to somebody and and you are afraid and you need help escaping, this society has an obligation to support your efforts to free yourself from a abusive or violent situation, but there comes a point in every adult's life where you need to take some responsibility for yourself and your kids. And I remember getting into a big fight um, with a great champion of anti-domestic violence, the late Sheila Wellstone, wife of Senator Paul Wellstone, where I said, you know, at a certain point, we need to hold victims, even if they're victims, accountable for the damage that they're doing. In the same way, that we hold sexual abusers of children responsible for what they do, even if they were abused as kids, even if that's how they learned it, they still have to be responsible for their own behavior. So what will the new head of DCFS be able to do? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they'll be able to do. But we, as a voting public, who are actively advocating for progressive causes and support for children and families and workers, we need to let it be known that we're also willing to pay for this. We need to let it be known that we want supports for these children and their families and also consequences for people who do violence to these children or make them unsafe or shame and abuse them for their orientation their sexual or gender orientation. We need to do more. And appointing a new head of DCFS, I don't think it's enough. I just don't think it can possibly be enough. 773-763-WCPT. If you have an experience with the system, if you've interacted with it in any way, I would be particularly curious to hear your story and how that has formed your opinion of what can and cannot be done. What was the big story? Was it um, Crystal Lake, Elgin? With the family where everybody knew something was wrong, the kids weren't going to school, and the, the calls were coming in, 
and the Department of Children and Family Services did nothing, went through and saw that the home was in squalor and just said, well, okay, could be worse. We can't raise our children with could be worse. Could be worse is not acceptable. Could be worse. And I'm not even sure if there's... I don't. Do you actually think that there is anybody that the governor could appoint who can really shape and form this system now? And where, in your opinion, would be the first place we should start? I'm no expert. I would say, though, you start with hiring caseworkers because right now, The caseworkers do not physically have enough time for the cases in their electronic inbox. They just physically cannot keep up. A home visit, that's so far out of what they can manage on a typical day. There's just no way. We are asking more of people than they can do. And these are pretty good jobs as far as the wages. And we are training here in in Illinois, amazing social workers. I know some of them, they care a lot. I think when they come into the system, a lot of these workers, I mean, they're, they're not motivated by getting rich. Nobody goes, oh, you know what? This is a really great job working for the state as a Department of Children and Family Services caseworker. This is fantastic. Uh, you'll have an easy life. Nobody. Every single one of these people comes in wanting to make a difference in the life of a, of a kid or a family. Every single one of them. But there are not enough people to get the work done. So if I were, or if you were, the new head of DCFS, got a new one today, what do you think is the first thing you would do? What would you be starting with? Caseworkers, hiring them, I'd go with that. I think also it interacts in a really, truly terrible way with our immigration system. There are kids who are being abandoned here with family or distant friends because the parents are not here with documents and the kids are and the parents leave them here in hopes that they will have a better life and perhaps even be able to bring the parents over under family reunification. The whole system is, to use the cliche, a perfect storm of you know what itness. And naming a new head of DCFS is a nice start, but there's going to be a lot that has to happen from here. We have a few minutes left if you want to insert your thoughts. 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278. I do know that if you have a kid that goes through public school and you want to know who's having difficulty at home, um, if you want to know who is in trouble, who doesn't have support, your kid can probably tell you. Your kid probably knows. Your kid has probably seen the kid who um, who comes to school with the uh, with the black eye or the clothes that don't quite fit or the extra appetite at lunch or there's so many the kids know 
They always know. You could ask them. They would tell you. And you should listen. The flip side of that, by the way, <laughs> is the adults who who report. I still remember this. So, somebody threatened to report my mother to DCFS once uh, because my mother let me take the metro train downtown to the art museum at a young age. And this particular busybody suburban mother thought that my mother was a bad mother to let me go downtown at the age of, I don't know, 14 to the big bad city of Chicago and go to the Art Institute. Can you imagine? She was going to call DCFS on my mother. There were people who thought that my mother was a bad mother just because she worked. Starting from there, they would build on. So, yeah, there are always the Gladys Kravitzes who will look over the fence and see something. And it's hard to know. It's hard to know. And then there's the absolutely worst story from my own life that I will tell you about the kid we found at the park. Just about this season. Our kids were younger. And we had, we lived in Oakland and we lived in the city and we lived in a economically diverse and racially diverse and sexually diverse neighborhood with a community park where everybody played. And my husband took the kids to the park and it was getting dark because it was just after Christmas, the day after Christmas. And they locked up the park at night. It wasn't open all night, had big gates. And as my husband was getting ready to take off with the kids, he noticed a toddler wearing a diaper and a t-shirt. And it gets cold in the Bay Area at night. Diaper, t-shirt, I think he had shoes and nothing else. And it gets down the 50s. That's too cold. for And and nobody, no adult, nothing. So he picked up the kid and he brought the kid home and we called 911. And even though it was, I guess it might have been Christmas Day. And no matter what you have to say about law enforcement, they do want to help. In a city with an underfunded police department, on Christmas Day, in front of our house, within 10 minutes, we had two Oakland police, sheriffs, park police, trying to think there must have been some other, there there were four or five cars parked in front of our house, official cars, come to help this kid. And the police did what the police are good at. They started looking. They started knocking on doors. And it was maybe an hour, by which time we had put the kid in some of our kids' older clothes, changed the diaper, uh, put on a warm coat and some new socks. And the kid was sitting. We happened to have a life-size, adult-size rocking horse. We're sitting on the rocking horse with the kid. He's laughing. We're playing with the dog with the kid, big fluffy dog, German shepherd dog that loves kids. He's having a great time. And the door opens. The police officer opens the door. I still remember her name, Officer Batty. Had all the junior cops on because it's Christmas Day. People with seniority, they have the day off. And she walks in with a middle-aged guy. The boyfriend, he was maybe 40. The boyfriend of the grandmother 
of this kid. She lived in a building two doors down from the park. And get this, she ran a daycare. Mother of the kid was incarcerated, had been since the night before. Uncle, that would be the mother's younger brother, had taken the kid to the park and just forgotten about him. And the kid looks at this man, this two-and-a-half-year-old, he looks at this man, and he knows exactly who he is, apparently, because from the rocking horse, he plasters himself to me, this kid. He's like Velcro, smack up against me. And he had to peel him off like a starfish and hand him over to this man. And they lived a block away from us. And I looked at the police officer and I said, is there anything? And she stopped me. She said, there's nothing you can do. Anything that he would end up with would be worse than where he is now. Any complaint, any intervention would be worse than where he is now. Can you imagine having to say to somebody that the system is so broken that a kid's best place to be is in an apartment with kids coming and going, because don't forget there was a daycare center, a mother in jail, a supervisory uncle, maybe, who leaves you at a park in cold weather without adequate clothing, A grandmother who can't even bestir herself to actually walk the block and pick up her own kith and kin. Can you imagine looking somebody in the eye and saying, now this is the best place that this kid could be given our resources right now. That is what Heidi Mueller is up against when she takes over from Mark Smith February 1st. So we'll try and get some more professional insight into this. But if you could take a moment to consider what you can do to make things better for kids like that, that might be good news of your time. Thanks again to Andy, to Julia, to Matt, to Mark. I'll be here tomorrow. See you at 2 on WCPT.